Ghanaians. So I'll be speaking with Ayobami Olufadeji today, uh, Harvard Medical Faculty Emergency Physician, who would be walking us through how physicians are currently coping with the pandemic and also sort of sharing best tips on how we can actually navigate past this and what the world would sort of look like post-COVID. So Ayobami, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This is good. Well, this is a, I say to everybody, it's an awkward time for all of us. So, <laughs> no, yeah. everyone's trying to figure out how we manage through this. So, exactly, yeah. yeah, it's super critical time as well. So, just um, maybe start by telling us a bit about yourself, um, and then we would walk into to the interview sort of proper after yeah. that. So, yeah, Ayobami Olufadeji, like you mentioned, I'm a um, Attending physician at Beth Israel Deaconess and also uh, clinical instructor, or as you say, faculty at Harvard Medical School. Um, the kind of short version of the story is, you know, grew up in Nigeria. Um, went, primarily grew up in Lagos when I was 10 and then went to Botarko, where we actually where I met you at secondary school. Um, but the truth of it is kind of my journey has been sparked. I have, I tell people I have this very cliche story. When I was five years old, you know, initially I'd grown up poor until my dad got a good job when we were eight or nine or thereabout. And um, yeah, you know, kind of growing up in this underserved population, I realized really young that, you know, being a physician was one of the ways I thought I could add value to Nigeria as a whole and primarily actually to my own community, at least that community that I was growing up in. And that's kind of what it has been. You know, I ran with that kind of thesis my entire life. And Came here to the States for college and through that process, kind of luckily, I actually touched in my major like four times in college. Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I always knew I had to become a doctor, but there was like no clear path on how I was going to get there. And that's kind of the, the curse of options, if you will. It's, you know, your first degree can be whatever. I have friends in med school who studied dance, for example. Um, and I actually find that those people have tend to have like a more robust experience. Like they have a more robust life view than those of us like myself we kind of just like went straight through boring 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 but at any rate um in college changed my major four times just trying to get to i wasn't sure how i was going to go to get to med school um decided on what my father would argue was the most boring way so i, I chose to be a biology major yeah, no, my dad was like how can i be paying all this money for you to go to school and you study one subject and i was like well it's not really like that. It's not like I'm studying one subject. But, um, so yeah, did that and then went to med school. I kind of, you know, over my career, all my passions and things that I've worked on have really been fooled by that experience. And even though I've done things that have not necessarily been in Nigeria, they've all been around the same thesis of how do we provide better access to care for underserved populations. And that really has been um, kind of my MO, I guess, if you, if you will. And so, you know, things that we'll talk about today, experiences in my career have kind of been tied to that central theme. But, you know, to wrap up the bio, essentially, so went to Dartmouth for med school. Um, while I was in med school, started thinking that I needed more and that medicine doesn't really teach you about health systems. And so at that time, I um, got a master's in business administration as well. And then came to um, Harvard for emergency medicine training. And I have remained here as part of the faculty. And that's really kind of the brief bio. Yeah, well done. I think it's super impressive. These are like really the school of schools as far as like, you know, education is concerned, man. So I think, yeah, it's super impressive stuff. I just wonder whether you sleep at night. You know? No, it's not funny. <laughs> 
I oh man, it's actually really bad because like since my third year of med school, I've had really bad sleep as well. Oh, as wow. The truth of the matter wow. is, you know, I um I can't I count myself like incredibly blessed, right? And also with a stroke of luck every now and then. I find that, you know, that along the way there's always been kind of what I call like helpers. And so even though yes, obviously it was a decent amount of hard work, but I think to like, you know, all the pretty much like at every pivotal moment and whenever I think about decisions that I made to help me get as far as I have, they've always been even outside of my family, right? They've always been like little, what you would call like good angels on my shoulder, you know, whispering and saying, why don't you, you know, study for this exam or why don't you put, apply to this school anyway, right? And so I've been very incredibly lucky over the times, you know, to have people just kind of there, honestly, like literally they just show up you know right at the time of need and help guide me along the way so yeah 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 it takes a village it takes a village yeah. right <laughs> yeah. right so why don't you walk us through your other side projects so aside from because i know you were in nigeria a couple of months back prior yeah. to pandemic becoming like a huge deal that it is yeah so why don't you walk us through like what you do yeah. in nigeria and your other um, yeah. So pr primarily, there are two things that I do in Nigeria right now. And the, the one that I will talk about a lot. So let me start with the one I'm not going to talk about too much. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, my friends and I started something called Digital Health Nigeria. Digital Health Nigeria is a small grassroots organization and a platform with the aim of supporting and highlighting all the digital tech solutions that we have in the country. And so, you know, we came about with this idea kind of in, if you remember, kind of around 2000 and I'd say 2015, 2017, there was this kind of big tech wave, right? Everybody was like, oh my gosh, the Jumias were popping up, the Congas were popping up, the CC hubs were popping up. And now even further, now you have all the fintech startups that have popped up. And the thesis at that time was that, so a lot of these other tech startups were getting um, what you would say, like a claim, quote unquote, but rightfully so. But what we found was um, that there weren't a lot of health tech stars that people were talking about, right? So there were poor people in the market doing good things. So LifePack has been there for some time and what have you. But there was not really kind of a buzz around them, if you will. Now, obviously, the pandemic has changed all that, right? All you can hear now is I have a telemedicine solution, I have an EMR solution. Everybody has one now and is bringing it to the forefront. But the, we thought at that time that we could support those startups. And so that's basically what we did for the last few years. And we've done it in a number of ways. We've given market research grants to people. So for example, you come with us an idea and say, hey, I really think that people want to go to this type of pharmacy for their care and you're not able to prove it. So we give you a little bit of a grant to go do surveys and return that research data. And so we've done that. We've helped plan hackathons. We hold um, social meetups, essentially just so founders can come together and brainstorm ideas. And so that's where that is right now. I can, that is not necessarily particular to this conversation, but that's what I've also been involved in. Now, kind of the crux of, you know, my time spent in Nigeria is working on something called We Believe Health. And We Believe essentially is our two things. It's both a for-profit organization and a non-profit organization. We've actually spent a lot of our time working on the non-profit end. The thesis is kind of the same thesis of my life, to be honest. It's the idea that we have to find a better way to provide care for underserved populations. And we've tried to do that in a number of different ways. We've done, um, you know, whether it's sick bay projects in underserved areas in Lagos, whether it's we've conducted surveys for other organizations so to get a better sense of the market and market landscape. Um, but most recently, 
having now trained and become an emergency physician, what we've been doing is trying to work on capacity um, building projects across Nigeria, thinking about how do we get people better at delivering emergency care? So as, as you might know, and as the viewers might know, we do not have emergency medicine as a specialty in Nigeria. And so while there are very skilled physicians that work in our versions of emergency departments or A&Es, if you will, they actually have no standardized training in emergency medicine. And what that ends up doing is it causes there to be some lapses in the way that care is delivered. And also one of the beauties of emergency medicine is that we do a lot of standardization in the way that we deliver our care. And so we spent the last year or so kind of think about how do we beef up emergency um, care in Nigeria? Just a couple random things, you know, um, basic life support is so BLS is kind of a class that everybody in the U.S. takes. I have met physicians in Nigeria who've been practicing for years and never took a basic life support class, right? ACLS is advanced cardiorespiratory life support. There are only a number of places in the country of 200 million, and I mean a number like less than 20, where you can go get that course and be trained in how to do that and manage that well. It's even worse when you talk about trauma care, right? There are even fewer places where you can get trauma care. And so kind of our thought process is how do we help Nigerians? Because the truth of the matter is a lot of these physicians who are on the front line, so to speak, are good people and they're great physicians and they're great clinicians but the truth but the also the other truth of the matter is that there are certain lapses in their medical education or in their certifications that we need to fill in order to improve the way we deliver emergency care and so that's been our thesis that's basically what i do right now for the most part is helping physicians um learn some of these very we taught a who basic emergency care course uh just recently at uh, one of the teaching hospitals in lagos and hope to continue to do so uh, in the coming months. Okay, okay, thanks for sharing that. I, I think, have you, I mean, I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but have you ran into any system problems where, you know, obviously you're doing this and then someone is, um, you know, not letting you come into a hospital to train teams, etc. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned, you know, even as a Nigerian, you know, when, whenever we, I, I really don't like the word global health because of just the connotations it has. But for lack of better words, when we do global health training here in the States, everybody says, oh, yeah, go learn that local context. And that's really important because you want to understand how are they currently managing things where they are. Um, so to answer your question, you know, what I've learned is even being, quote, unquote, a local, right? I'm Nigerian. I grew up in Lagos to some degree. Having been out of the country for over a decade, there are definitely certain things that are culturally kind of difficult to, you know, arrange for. I will tell you, and I'll be very honest, you know, when I first started trying to get this project off the ground, this particular one that we just completed, um, I had faced a lot of challenges actually at the hospital. And I think the truth of the matter was they were tired of people coming from abroad and saying, hey, we have this new brand shiny tool that we think, right? And so a lot of the time, you know, most of the ideas I had in the beginning and, you know, projects I wanted to run were all literally shut down. And I would spend days, days, days at the hospital just waiting for somebody to sign a letter or you know how Nigerian bureaucracy yeah, works, yeah, right? Yeah. But I will say that now, you know, on my more recent trips, I have been very, very, I felt very welcome. And the point I'm trying to make essentially is that there's a certain tenacity that is required to do any type of thing in Nigeria, right? Even if you wanted to start a barber salon, right? You know. There's just that kind of, uh, those are these many systemic kind of cultural issues that everybody faces. And I think that, yeah, those were present. But I will say that now, you know, after kind of working at that and chomping at the bit, if you will, I kind of feel now that 
it just feels a little bit more relaxed when I, for example, you know, if I really wanted to talk to the head of A&E at that facility, right, I will probably be, you know, one text message away from him or, you know, one phone call at most. And so I kind of feel that um, in some ways it ends up coming down to what your motives are and how, how dedicated you are to the cause that you are pushing for. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You need that dogged, doggedness and dogged determination to kind of push things. Yeah, because um, because yeah, if you just go there once, twice, and you don't yeah, succeed, don't, yeah, no one, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to go far with anything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Okay. So I mean, I, I think let's get into like the nitty gritty then, um, as far as like what we're dealing with at yeah. the minute. So do you, I mean, there's a lot of information on COVID-19. I think everybody, you know, in my in layperson's opinion, knows enough to be safe, et cetera. From a, from a medical expert's perspective, what, what do you feel? How do you, how do you see the situation? Do you think people in, I mean, particularly in Nigeria, do know enough at this stage? Do you think the government's done enough so far? Yeah, so I would say, you know, Nigeria is an interesting place because one thing, there's never a straightforward answer, right? <laughs> there's always, you know, we've done enough, but we could do more or, you know, we've done nothing at all. And I think on this case, we kind of sit on the we've done something. Um, I think as far as public education and public knowledge about what's going on, I think that we've done a pretty decent job. I will say, you know, obviously, we live in a world now where we almost are cocooned by social media and not necessarily but just the internet right and so you think that what you know via twitter or the internet or business day online is what the rest of the country knows right whatsapp has shown that many times over that people <laughs> actually just come up with their own stories, right? yeah drink warm water for whatever the case may be so no but i I think there are two parts to your question there as far as public knowledge you know from my standpoint from my point of view i do think that we've done a really good job you know there are memes all over the place there's infographics over the place i don't think that you know at least in the beginning you know there were all these rumors oh it doesn't affect black people it's fake there's no need to actually wear a mask or you know do social distancing but i think that my general sense now is everybody has kind of caught on as to this is real, right? We have to be very careful. We have to, you know, maintain social distancing. Even if they're not doing it, they understand the importance of it, right? At least they're knowledgeable about what needs to be done. Now, if someone decides to go through with what's been advised, that's different. And then I think even beyond what we know, I think the NCDC has done a really good job of at least reaching out to everybody who has some sort of cellular device, right? Even, even if you're not on Twitter or social media, if you have a cellular device that does USSD messaging or something along those lines, the NCDC has tried their best to reach out to those populations. And even beyond that, I'm aware of startups now that go into communities, especially like in River State, and they try to share information kind of to towns leaders and heads of, you know, heads of community religious leaders. And so we are doing a good job as far as public health goes, public health information. I think we're doing that. Now, from where the government stands, I think that um, I think that there's a lot of things that have um, that we could have done better. I'll give you just an example. So, one of the things, and these these are all information that you hear online, and so you have to double check. But one thing I think that actually handicapped our Ministry of Health's ability to purchase products or PPE, if you will, in the beginning and testing was they can't make requests on their budget from their own ministry. 
right? They have to go through another ministry. I believe it's the Ministry of Agriculture to get kind of requests done. I think that um, when you're in a state of emergency, whether the country acknowledges it or not, when the world is in a state of heightened emergency, little bureaucratic blockages like that should be eliminated, right? When you understand that we are, so I think if we dug deeper, we'd probably find little things here and there um, of where the government has been kind of a block to its own self in allowing and, you know, in the name of bureaucracy and due process and preventing us from acting as quickly as we can. Um, but I think the government is trying their best now, right? They understand that despite, excuse me, despite how difficult it is to lock down Nigeria, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, they understood how important it was and at least started on that path. Despite how difficult it is for us to have closed our borders, we did that maybe a little later, but we still did it. And so I think that they understand that some of these decisions are very difficult. Now in an utopian world, we want them to make them really quickly, but I think that they're on the right path, even if they're moving a little slower than we'd expect. Right, right. Yeah, I think so too. I think so. I think they've done a, a, a good job, um, as you say. I just think there's, yeah, there's probably a bit, a little more that we can all do. Um, exactly. But yeah. yeah. So I think the lockdown will be lifted in a week or by Monday mm-hmm. with the curfew still on, still in play, right? Um, and then without the state kind of um, involved, um, I think kind of still on full lockdown. Yeah. So has the lockdown helped? Uh, do you think that we're good to go now, at least to go to work without places of worship yet? Um, I don't know about, I don't know about <laughs> Are we good to go? Oh, man. That's, that's Are we tough, safe? Right? Is it safe no, to I come mean, out? <laughs> I know. <laughs> the lockdown has definitely helped, right? I think, you know, if we look at, and I was actually thinking about this really at the beginning, and maybe this was a lack of testing because you can't really tell, but if you looked at models kind of looking at the rest of the world and even us as Nigeria, um, models were predicting that you would double your number of positive tests every two to three days to positive patients, right? Every two to three days. Now, it's possible that we had testing challenges, but that was not actually the case in our country, right? Sometimes it would take us up to four days to double, sometimes even five. And so, you know, Buhari mentioned this, and I agree that, you know, initial models expected that we'd be in a worse off case by now, right? We just announced yesterday evening that we're at 1,500 cases. And so the models that actually came out put us at over 2,000, maybe even 3,000 at this point. And so you can make the argument either way, but I do think that the lockdown has helped to a lot, to a big degree. Obviously, people are not completely adhering to it, but I'm sure you know friends and I know friends and my family, a lot of them have actually stayed at home, right? And we have to think that if they were not home, we'd be significantly worse off. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I don't necessarily think that... Um, I'm not sure on the strategy that they're taking right now. And here's the reason why. I think when you put a curfew on, you limit some type of activity, but you're not limiting. This, the, I, I find it difficult to understand what the curfew achieves, right? Obviously, there are jokes all over social media about the virus, you know, going to bed at eight o'clock once, <laughs> once, once the curfew is, of, is in play. But I think, you know, in my opinion, I think what I would have probably recommended is kind of a graded opening. And so I say that to mean, so opening certain essential businesses, right, or businesses that limited people to a certain number of people in the office, right, and then doing it that way and, and figuring out, okay, 
what does the country actually really need now? Right. So we've talked about the lockdown and the economic implications of it. So we know that hawkers and traders and people of that nature are not able to fend for themselves. So I would say, you know, in my mind, I would think, what can we do for those populations? Obviously, you know, we just actually this morning or last night announced that we got a three billion dollar loan from the IMF. I don't know when that money will come, but that helps us alleviate that because my sense is that um, a country's ability to lock down is dependent on how well they're able to take care of their, their, of their, build a safety net for their vulnerable. And if we're able to do that, then I think we should hold that a little bit longer. As opposed to trying to figure out what can we do for the poor in the meantime. But I don't necessarily, and you know, we'd have to see, but I, I don't think that that curfew helps at all, to be very honest with you. Because if people are around during the day, I mean, you're allowed to be around from six to six, almost 12 hours a day. That's entirely normal working hours. And if all companies and everybody open up and start to work, then there's no point locking down, right? Because you've opened up the country. You've allowed people to mix and mingle and talk. Now, I think mandating face masks is something that I think is very important. Now, how do we go about doing that in a safe way so that the police don't, you know, become power hungry and then enforce that in a significant way? I think that's going to be difficult to see and difficult to watch, but very necessary. And so, yeah, I mean, my, my thoughts are that the, the, there's no question that our country had to open before the lockdown, before it was clinically safe to do so, right? We had to open. People were poor. People are hungry. People are dying to some degree. Um, but now that we have some funds, and I think now that we've had some times, so we should really be thinking about how do we prepare ourselves to do four things. And I actually happened to write an article about this. Um, but there are four things I think are important. So one is um, thinking about how to expand testing. And NCDC came out and said yesterday that they want to test. They have a plan in place to test 2 million Nigerians over the next three months. I think that's laudable. Um, I think what we need to do is increase that capacity on a daily basis, right? We're not going to wait for three months. We can't lock the country down for three months. So that's, that's my thought on that. Um, I think we need to mandate mass wearing of masks, and we're close to doing that. Now we have to figure out how to enforce it. I think we need PPE for our physicians, right? So you, that's a very simple thing. And then the last thing, actually, which I think we're not doing well enough, and this will come to your one of the things we had said we'll talk about today is Senegal. And, and we're not doing, or at least I shouldn't say we're not doing, because I'm sure we are, but there hasn't been an emphasis based on what I've seen on research and how we're able to leverage research to help us figure out how to answer questions for our local context. So in my mind, those are the four things that we need to make sure we've shored up before we start to gradually open back the economy. But I think this idea of opening it for the whole day and then closing it for some of the day, I don't necessarily think that helps us kind of in our battle against the virus. I think it, it will help to some degree from an economic standpoint, but truth of the matter is if you're going to open it, then you might as well just open it. Yeah. Right? There's, what, what is the closing it at nighttime going to do? Maybe limit some insurgents. I guess that, that's the argument that can be made for, but um, I, just, I just really think or, that- Or, or there's a lot more touching at the nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, we're free. Let's go to Quillons. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah so it's that. Yeah, um, I think we have to do it one way or the other. And um, I don't know if this half, half in, half out is the right way, but it's yet to be seen. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what, how it plays out. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think, I, think, um, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't understand the strategy myself, but I kind of, I, I kind of feel like their hands are tied in a way and they're trying to figure yes, stuff out. They haven't put 
no one's dealt with something like this in a yeah. lifetime. Yeah. Like yeah. So, so they're just trying to figure things out. I just felt like a, an extra month of lockdown, another two weeks. People are just kind of getting very antsy, and um, yeah. you know, they've been like. I mean, I mean, for example, Ghana, Ghana opened up their Ghana released their lockdown right because they've been doing oh. so great. And now they have like they announced, I think, close to two, almost a hundred and something cases in like the first forty-eight hours after the lockdown was lifted. Wow. Right, so we, I mean, <laughs> we just have to be careful here. We have to be careful here. Um, yeah, yeah. This is my, yeah, yeah. My, okay, yeah. So let's zoom out of Nigeria for a bit, but still, still in Africa. So you were talking about Ghana just now. I mean, but how are other African countries? Is there any African country that you feel is just killing this stuff, like handling it? Because I feel like in Nigeria, I mean, I know you said we weren't, we weren't having any issues with testing. Was that? Sorry, this is like two questions, right? Was that right. because, because I last time I read was we had, we were testing 2,500 people a day in all the mm -hmm. testing centers combined. So I feel like we're severely under testing. Yeah. I, I would yeah. need to, as you said, progressively ramp up tests. So, yeah, so I mean, yeah, yeah so I, I don't, I, I mean, like most Nigerians, I don't really trust the figures that the NC, NC yeah. produces on a daily basis because I feel like, there's just a lot more that we're not testing. Maybe we're dealing with this better. No, no. So I definitely think, you know, I think what I'm saying about the testing is that I was saying, basically thinking about the way that the numbers were growing, that if we were, in fact, testing the way we said we were, then that was a positive. Okay. I definitely don't think that we're doing enough tests. So that 2,500 number that you're referring to is what they call our capacity. So we have a capacity now that says 2,500. But if you actually look, we're only sending like 500 or 600 samples a day, right? So we're not testing. We're not having tested as much as 2,500, right? And so that's just our, so no, you know, that's the look into Nigeria for a quick second and then coming back out and looking at the rest of Africa. Um, I think, you know, if you look at Ghana, Ghana took this approach of kind of pool testing and it's how they've been able to do 68,000 tests or thereabout compared to our own, you know, 12. What is it, 10,000? I think we've done probably 12,000 at this point because I haven't looked at data in a few days, right? And Ghana took a very interesting approach, the same approach that Germany has done. And here's what they do if you, they take groups of 10 people and they kind of risk stratify them based on, you know, okay, this person had a fever for a few days, this person is otherwise healthy, da, da, da. They bunch those 10 people together, they take one sample from all the tell of them and they mix it up into one sample oh, wow. and then test that sample. Now, if that sample they test is negative, then all those 10 people are cleared and negative and they can continue oh. their day. If that sample is positive, then they oh. now test those 10 people individually to try to figure out who oh. in there is positive. And so what that has done to some degree is, you know that, you know, I'll tell you, you know, I, I take care of these patients every day, right? There's some people that you see and you're like, yeah, this person definitely has coronavirus. And there's some people that you see and you're like, mm, I don't know, it's on the border, right? If you were able to split those people into groups and batch test them, that to some degree gives you a sense of, okay, because the, the, the index of suspicion and there are lots of, everybody's developing kind of what we call clinical guidelines for determining who might have the virus, whatever the case may be. But then that's what Ghana has done to be significantly ahead of us, right? And that's why they've done almost six times as many tests as we have. So that's Ghana. Um, South Africa has just, you know, South Africa is South Africa and they, they just have money, right? <laughs> and they're allowed to do, and I don't have the exact numbers, but I know they've done a pretty good job. They started their lockdown either early or just right about when we did. They've tested at a significant capacity that is greater than ours. 
I think what's important is not to talk about Senegal and countries that are doing what Senegal is doing. And this is why my last point and the things we need to figure out is research, right? Because Senegal dealt with dengue fever and they dealt with Ebola, and they've been able to develop their research capacity to such a way where this $1 test that they're talking about right now that made the news is actually a test that they had developed for dengue fever. It's a 10-minute test where you come in either with, the, with blood or sputum. And actually, Duke is looking at the same thing now. I don't know if because Senegal make noise about it. But at any rate, Duke is also now looking at using what we call sputum, which is basically saliva, to test for coronavirus. And so what that shows you is that when they had experiences in the past of different types of diseases, they built research capacity to where they could develop their own tests in the country. I don't know if it's possible for Nigeria to develop our own tests in the country, right? And that's, this is the, some of the challenges that we have. And now Senegal is saying that they want to actually make a million and two million, three million of these because they want to share it across West Africa, right? I will say, you know, a lot of people online are like, oh, why doesn't Nigeria just go buy the Senegalese tests or whatever? I will say, you know, the way that these tests are developed and the kind of rigorous research that has to go into them, you can't just buy a Senegalese test, right? You have to make sure that it's been studied and that, you know, that the sensitivities and specificities of the test make sense. And it's not just as straightforward, but I think what is commendable there is that they've used experiences from managing many infectious diseases and they've actually put it into research that now has brought them, that is probably going to bring them through another, another, another disease outbreak. And so we need to make sure that we have research institutions in place that actually allow us to survive when corona is over. Right, and this is the one thing I tell people when I talk about this a lot is when we're thinking about health systems, I think obviously there's fire on the mountain right now. But what we have to understand is when we turn off this fire, when we pour all the water, do we have a solution that allows water to continue to come? Are we building for the future? Are we building past coronavirus? I think the fact that Senegal is able to develop their own tests in a matter of three weeks shows us that they actually were putting together capacity to allow them see whatever was coming next. And that's where I think um, we have work to do, so. Okay, okay. I think you're spot on with that as well. Yeah, I think anything with corona right now, the vaccines that they're testing, any new test should be obviously rigorously checked. I think it's commendable what the continent is actually doing. I mean, if, if we pull off this stuff and are able to kind of just mitigate the numbers, the way it looks up until, next year and the numbers haven't gotten yeah. to where Western Europe's numbers are. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be very applaudable. But just zooming out of Africa now, I think um, we're just going to listen to uh, just a short snippet of what Melinda Gates said uh, yeah. sometime, was it last two weeks? Two or three weeks anyway ago, and a lot of people, got a lot of people in Nigeria riled up. Um, I think it was, it was around middle of April or so. And, And so as soon as I saw that, and we know from the foundation's work how quickly disease spreads, I thought, oh my gosh, we have a crisis on our hands that we aren't even talking about yet in the United States and what's going to happen to the rest of the world. That's how much worse it's going to be in the developing world. It's going to be horrible in the developing world. And part of the reason you're seeing the case numbers still don't look very bad, it's because they don't have access to very many tests. So, you know, look at Ecuador. Look at what's going on in Ecuador. They're putting bodies out on the street. You're gonna see that in countries in Africa. So 
Yeah, so I mean, that's, she's an expert, right? In pandemics, endemics, global diseases, you know, vaccines, you name it. Like, that's what they study um, yeah. probably for the last sort of 10, 15 years. So why do you think she said that? Do you think that's wrong in the first place? Or do you think it was just insensitive and she really didn't get the context of how? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I listened to this and, um, and <laughs> you know, one of the things I thought was also that actually personally I don't like is when people bundle Africa as one, one entity. Yeah. You know, she, she kept saying in that interview, you know, I've been to Africa and I've done work in Africa. And my thought is where? You know, like, I want you to mention, you know, like, places that you've been, right? Because as we know, we just talked, right? Even in West Africa, people are responding to this differently, right? Can, even then, when we look at Africa as a whole, right, Kenya is responding differently, the same way South Africa is responding differently, yeah. right? Broad you know, and so I think, I, I think that what she, I mean, be, because the Gates Foundation have been kind of, you know, shining stars for years, I think it's always worth it to give them some benefit of a doubt. And I think that what she was trying to do there is just raise alarm to the fact that we need, or that America or the global community needed to take a closer look at Africa and make sure that we were supporting them, right? Because one of the things she said, I think, in the beginning is that, you know, there's just a lot of inequality in the world and, you know, we are struggling with it as in her and people and in the Western world, how much more, you know, in the developing world. Yeah. And so I think that that was, um, you know, from a good place, but I think that the wording could have been different. Um, but the honest truth when we try to grapple with it, with it is that um, I don't think we're going to be dragging people into the streets, you know, God forbid. Uh-huh. But, but we are, you know, this is a virus that is claiming um, a mortality rate kind of worldwide at like 7%, right? In Italy, it was 10%. In Nigeria so far, we've been lucky it's close to 3%. You know, people are speculating as to why that might be. Oh, some of it is probably from underreporting. But I think that there is some concern, you know, that that could be our fate. And if that, if that does become our fate, where do, we, where do we lie, right? In Italy, it was a 10% mortality for a long period of time. That means one out of 10 people died. That's, that is insane to think about, right? And so if one out of 10 people that caught coronavirus died in Nigeria, we, you know, there'd be pandemonium everywhere. And so I think that was what she was trying to, you know, allude at or, you know, raise awareness to. But I think that the wording could have been uh, different, yeah. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Because they have a loud microphone. They have a huge spotlight um, on themselves. So they have to kind of watch uh, everything. I just felt like that was just... Um, taste of words uh okay so how are you doing let's go back to like yeah. <laughs> yeah. medical experts on the front the line truth, the truth is um i so saw as you said i just got back from nigeria and when i got back from nigeria i was incredibly busy i'm incredibly busy I, was, I worked i think for the first three weeks i had like maybe three days off when i first got back so i was working a lot and um, I'm actually, I was actually supposed to be back in Nigeria next week, checking up on our project. And I mean, last week, sorry. Oh, yeah. That didn't, yeah. So last week that didn't happen. So I picked up a couple of shifts, but for the first time, I actually felt like I was locked down. And I can, I can imagine why this is very like unnerving for most people. Right. I think, you know, I was just thinking today is like, I'm so grateful that I have a job that I can still go to because that gives me some semblance of normalcy. I think for many people who are used to going to work, who don't have to stay at home, I can't imagine how they're managing with this. I think, you know, for me, 
personally, the difficult thing is not being around my family right now. And so that's a little hard, you know, trying to adjust to that. The difficult thing too is, you know, when I first got back, there were physicians my age, and I'm relatively young, who were writing their will, right? Because what we had heard was it's killing 10% of people in Italy and doctors. The numbers in Italy, I think over like 200 physicians died, something like that. I have to double check that number. Or no, I think I mixed that up. I think like 200 physicians were infected, but like 50 died, right? And so we were all worried, like, oh, my gosh, physicians are dying. We should all write a will. You know, they, you have colleagues that have died. Um, and, but that, you know, and this is a very weird time for every one of us. I think that um, we're all trying to make sense of what is happening. You know, truth of the matter is, you might have heard this, but a pretty, like, high-up physician in New York just committed suicide, right? And she did this kind of in the middle of she our hospital is one of the ones kind of hit hard by the virus and you know it's obviously hard to speculate and i'm sorry i shouldn't say that word committed suicide i've been told that you should say it in a different way um but um at any rate um she passed away and it's hard to speculate you know why she did it but a lot of people are pointing to the stress that she had had kind of in the last few um, in the last few days, thinking about managing patients and what it looked like for a health system. Because for them in New York, and luckily that has not been our case in Boston, it has been a very difficult time for them adjusting to, you know, really, really sick patients every single day. You know, everywhere you turn, sick people passing away, dying. And so that in itself is traumatizing. And um, learning to manage that is something that you're never prepared for. Yeah, 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 that's true. So there's a lot of talk as well about mental health um, for, especially for physicians and for um, just everyday people as well that are just, you know, trying to cope with, trying to cope with, with things like this. Do you have any sort of thoughts around that? Yeah, no, I think it's super important, right? I think, you know, what we, a lot of things have changed from kind of our patient parents' generations as far as how much stimulus we have kind of, you know, the world is a global village now for all intents and purposes. And what that means is that we're stimulated by so much. So, you know, the deaths that were happening in Italy, we felt it here, right? I'm worried about Nigeria every day, right? Um, the patients that I take care of here. And that ends up being like a significant burden. I'll tell you, honestly, like I got back and on those three days stretch, that three week stretch when it was really hard, I meditated pretty much like every day. I did yoga every other day. Right, because I just appreciate how important it is to keep your mind um, kind of, I don't want to say clear, but that's probably the best way to say it, right? Because it can get really heavy, really fast. And so 100%, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety during this time. I'd say like, even if you're not anxious about yourself, if you have parents who are older, you're anxious about them, and you're anxious about friends. And I think one of the things that was difficult for me one day is I realized after talking to some friends in New York that almost all of us will know somebody who dies from this. And to think that, you know, life is, it's, it's, death is so finite, right? You don't, death is not like, oh, you broke your leg. Maybe you can use crutches or, you know, or you can get amputated and then get fitted for a prosthetic. No, this is like that person is gone. You will never see them again. You will never talk to them again. Um, and so I think, that's really, that's is really, it's, it's a very sombering thing to think about. I think that we definitely need to be making sure that in what ways possible that we're taking care of our mental health. You know, I think for me, 
I found a few outlets, right? I talked about meditation. I talked about yoga. I love to cook, right? I'm doing it almost obsessively now, pretty much like if I'm yeah, off. I'm actually on Instagram, you know. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, this is nice. But I'm like, no, you don't understand. I need this escape, right? Yeah. If I go in the kitchen, I know that I'm protected like one hour, one to two hours of happiness where I know I enjoy this thoroughly. I don't have to think about much, you know, in those times. That is my time. I'm just protected for me. And so, yeah, I think we just have to try to find ways um, to make sure that we're staying light, if you will, that our hearts are staying happy, that our, you know, our heads are staying unclogged, whatever, if if, if we can use those words. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's super important, super important right now. Great. I agree. Last question will be just like, so the lockdown has been lifted. You're a guy in Nigeria. You're told that you can go into work and... You kind of have to navigate public transport systems, et cetera. What's, what's the plan? What's the deal? Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, um, I mean, I, we can't keep going about what, I, what we think is right. Let's say we're assuming that it has happened. Real life. Um, the way yeah. exactly right, this has happened, this is real life, go. <laughs> um, you know, we're going, what we know about the virus that is, is that it is spread through droplets, right? and some sort of contact with somebody who's sick. I think truth of the matter is that if you wear a mask um, and everybody's wearing masks, we actually, some data is showing now that you can drop that transmission rate actually to like as low as 3%. So that's, that's a really good number, right? And so I think what I would do if I were young is, and I really need to take public transit to go to work, is as much as possible, keep on a mask 24 seven, right? Everybody should be able to have access to hand sanitizers. I think this is the things that the government should be able to assist with, right? If they are, in fact, going to lift the lockdown, make sure that people have access to masks. Like literally, you should be able to walk up to a police officer and the police officer should give you a mask, right? You should be able to walk up to a police officer and ask for hand sanitizer and they give you some right there. And so this is how you build an economy to be ready to reopen is if you have all these public health measures in place. So yeah, if you're that guy and you have to go to work, I hope that you're wearing a mask 24 seven. I hope you're washing your hands as often as you can. Truth of the matter is that you will not get this virus actually honestly if you have clean hands when you touch your face, right? The virus is not gonna get transmitted through your skin. It goes through the nose, through the mouth, through the eyes actually, to some degree maybe. Um, and so I think if you're wearing a mask and maybe even honestly, maybe, maybe we need to start thinking about some level of eye protection, right? Then you're probably gonna be okay as long as one, obviously you're not around lots of people who are coughing and they're wearing masks and two, you're performing good hand hygiene. There is a possibility that you might be, um, might be spared, but I would say it takes a new heightened level of kind of, uh, I don't wanna say self-preservation, but it's really more about making sure that you're protecting yourself at all costs, irrespective of what people are doing around you. Sure. Thanks so much, Aya. This is so, so, um, so informative, so uh, insightful. I, I learned a lot. I mean, yeah, I'd known like the lay person's perspective of all yeah. of this stuff, but it's just nice and insightful hearing someone share it. Like an expert that's dealing with it every day. Share it. That's super, super helpful, man. Thank you. Yeah, Honestly. that's my pleasure. Good. Thank you for having me. This is a good conversation. Thanks, man. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. So I will, I will put the link to that article um, on the podcast episode. It's very good. Oh, nice. That works well. Yeah, good. You can find it as well. Great. All right, boss. All right. Easy. Yeah. Thank you so much. Take it easy.